Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And today with us, we have Kansas City native Joe Heschmeyer, who is a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. He's a popular author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster. He joined the Apostolate in March of 2021 after three years as an instructor at Holy Family School of Faith in Overland Park, Kansas. Joe and his wife, Anna, along with their children, Stella and James, reside in the Kansas City area. In his free time, he enjoys reading, listening to podcasts, and tormenting his loved ones with terrible puns. Today, we'll be discussing his book, The Early Church Was a Catholic Church, The Catholic Witness of the Fathers in Christianity's First Two Centuries. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thanks. It's good to be back. Awesome. So, really, uh, really good book. I mean, uh, Mike Aquilina really turned me on to the early church, um, so I kind of have a uh, interest in it to begin with. But to kind of start off our discussion today, why was it important for you to write this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the reasons is when I'm talking to people who converted, especially from Protestantism to Catholicism, the stories really frequently involve the early church fathers. It really frequently involves, you know, I wanted to find out where the Bible came from, and it led me to the early church, or I just want to know what the early Christians actually believed. I want to know if their church looked like my evangelical church. You know, those kind of questions, when people start down that road, they frequently end up converting to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I want to lead people down that road. I want to at least point that road out to them and suggest we've got a lot we can learn from the early Christians. So that's one reason. The other reason is, as I point out in the book, if you're going to critique a Catholic teaching, if you're going to say, uh, you teach something Jesus didn't teach, you know, that Catholic teaching didn't start with Jesus, it started at some other point in history. Well, that's both a theological claim and also a historical claim. Uh, and so let's analyze the historical claim. Is it really true that the Catholic Church corrupted Jesus' teaching? Is it really true that these teachings don't go back to the first century, they go back to the fourth century or the sixteenth century or whatever? And, and once we have that conversation, of course, we're squarely looking at, at this question of the early Christians. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me as a convert myself, um, 
making that connection between the early church and Jesus and the apostles was pretty easy uh, for me personally. So, and you kind of alluded to it there in your explanation for why you wrote the book. But why do you think so many either ignore or refute that that lineage? Yeah, I think a few reasons. One is simple ignorance. A lot of uh, a lot of Protestants either kind of blindly assume that the early Christians were really disorganized and they believed a bunch of different things and they were basically like Protestants, and then the organization all came later, maybe with Constantine, maybe after him, and and that's when you get something organized and structured and, and very Catholic-looking. You'll hear that story told a lot, and rarely do the people telling that story bother trying to investigate whether it's true or they're giving any sort of historical support for that claim. Uh, so that's one. And then, you know, even like uh, in one of, actually in Pope Peter, I mentioned uh, a quote from Dr. Gavin Ortland, who's a Baptist, who, who pointed out that a lot of Protestant seminaries kind of skip from the time of the Apostles, maybe to Augustine, and then basically to the Reformation. And in this book, I point out that like starting church history at the Reformation would be like starting U.S. history in 1960, with, like, with the election of JFK. Mm-hmm. You're three quarters of the way through the story by that point. Like, it, that's just a bad way to tell the story. Um, and, and I think we, we see that. Like, that Christians who don't know the first 1,500 years of their history aren't a bad place to know what Christianity is really about because they've, they're ignorant of most of it. So I think there's a lot of kind of that that's going on. And then finally, I think there's honestly just a sense that, like, well, this feels daunting. I don't know anything about this. In the same way that if I said, hey, let's go read, like, 17th century Chinese history, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, let's not. Let's not do that. That sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like it would be very confusing. And and I, so one of the things that I'm hoping this book does is shows that it's really not that hard. Like, when you if you are versed in Christianity, you read these guys, and you can figure out pretty quickly, especially if you have a guide, what they're talking about, the kind of theological arguments they're making, and... And maybe, depending on what kind of Christianity you're coming from, it feels very foreign at first. I think for most Catholic readers, it feels very natural. They they read and sound like Catholics. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the book, you touch upon, you know, I, I couldn't think of a better word to use, but pretty hot-button issues uh, in the uh, realm of theology disputes, we shall say, as far as doctrine goes. And I like to touch upon some of those a bit to give people a feel for what's in the book. And in the second... Yeah, I'd be happy. Yeah. In the second chapter, you look at baptism um, and the Mm -hmm. differences in thought on it. So what did the early church believe about baptism and how did it kind of get convoluted by some people as the time passed? Yeah, so they believed several things. I, I point out four major ones in the beginning, that there's a cleansing of sin through water, that baptism leads to spiritual rebirth, that it bestows the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that it is entrance into the people of God. And in that, I look at the Old Testament evidence and the New Testament evidence, and then what the early Christians believed about it. Um, I also... I quote Everett Ferguson, who is a Protestant elder and biblical scholar and church historian, and he wrote a book called Baptism in the Early Church, in which he looks at the first five centuries. So I'm looking at just the first two centuries in my book, because understandably, like if I say, oh, look, someone in the year 500 believed this about Catholicism, or, you know, this, they held this Catholic doctrine, I, I think a lot of readers are going to say, well, that's so late, they could have, that could have been a corruption. I understand. Uh, so looking at the first 200 years. But Ferguson, like I said, he's looking at the first 500. 
And what he says is that there's a remarkable agreement on the benefits received in baptism that nobody, nobody in the early church thinks it's just a symbol. Nobody thinks baptism is like just an ordinance that we do as already saved Christians, which is what evangelicals and non-denominational Christians tend to believe. Uh, people who call themselves born-again Christians tend to think being born again is like a personal commitment I make to Jesus, or I say a sinner's prayer or, or something of the sort. The early Christians were, I'm not exaggerating here, unanimous that being born again was being born of water and the Spirit in baptism. That's what Jesus says in John 3. And, and then we see the immediate aftermath is that the disciples go and baptize. And that's how the early Christians understood it, that this was not like a fringe view. This was a, like the Protestant view was a non-existent view in the early mm-hmm. church. So moving on in chapter three, I think you talk about the, the two big um, heavy hitter questions and, or topics, and that's the Eucharist and the Mass. Um, so what position did the early church take on the real presence, because that today, obviously, for some people, is a real hang-up. Yeah, so one of the things is that they believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. I want to actually be even maybe a little more specific Mm -hmm. and say we get some pretty strong indications they believe the Eucharist is Jesus. And the reason I make that distinction is that some Protestants will claim that they hold to a real presence view. You know, you'll find some Reformed believers who will say, well, Christ is spiritually present in some way in the Eucharist, You'll find Lutherans who say Christ is in with and under the bread and wine. But I think when you read the Church Fathers, you don't find anyone saying those things. You find instead uh, this idea, like you know, people like Ignatius of Antioch present, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not just presence in, but he is present as the Eucharist. And that's a, a pretty significant distinction. That's maybe the, the first element when we're talking about real presence. Uh, but the second is even clearer. So I, I think probably some listeners hearing what I just said are saying, that feels like a subtle difference. Mm-hmm. And it it really isn't. You know, one of the questions is, when you see the Eucharist, should you worship it as God, or should you treat it as a symbol or, you know, something else? And if, if you're not worshiping the Eucharist, you're not doing what the early Church did. They clearly did worship the Eucharist. Um, but then that, that leads into the second point, that in the Mass itself, there's a, a clear, universal belief that the Mass is a sacrifice. And I actually get to quote, uh, in support of this idea, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who, mm-hmm. even though they didn't personally believe the Mass was a sacrifice, they knew they were rejecting the universal belief of those who come before them. They knew that everyone uh, before them thought that the Mass was a sacrifice. Martin Luther actually said, there is no belief in the Church more generally received or more firmly held than that the Mass is a good work and a sacrifice. And John Calvin claimed the devil had not only obscured and perverted, but altogether obliterated and abolished the Lord's Supper when he blinded almost the whole world into the belief that the Mass is a sacrifice and oblation for the remission of sins. What does that matter? Because what both Calvin and Luther point out is that all the Church Fathers and ordinary Catholic or like ordinary believers for 1,500 years of Church history believe the Mass is a sacrifice, and that the texts of the Mass themselves speak of the Mass as a sacrifice. They mm-hmm. compare it to the sacrifice offered by Abel. And so every Christian going to church, or every priest celebrating Mass, was celebrating the Eucharistic sacrifice for 1,500 years. And then the Reformers come along and say, no, that's not good enough. Like, the Mass isn't actually a sacrifice. And in fact, 
it's heretical and wrong to believe that it is, and in fact you're re-sacrificing Jesus, and this is contrary to Scripture. I, I can't overstate what a massive break that is with Christianity as it had been practiced. I mean, if, if someone today came along and said, you know, hey, here's this really basic element of Christianity that everyone believes mm-hmm. this is actually heretical, that would be the equivalent. If someone said, you, you can't be a Christian and believe in the Trinity— it would be that level of, of just why, like, everyone believes that. Like, you're not a Christian if you don't believe that. That's the kind of, like, basic attack on the core of Christianity that the Reformers are engaged in. Uh, they're not just saying there's, there's two views and we take this view. They're saying everyone before us is wrong. That's a really out-there kind of idea. It's really wild. And so showing that, like, this was the universal view, not just in 1500. But this was the universal view in 200. This was the universal view in 100. That kind of element that we can even find texts from the first century that speak of the Mass as a sacrifice, and we don't find the Apostles saying, why, wait, why does everyone believe this? The Mass isn't a sacrifice. We actually have things like St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 comparing the Eucharist to the sacrifice offered by Jews in the Temple and the sacrifice offered by pagans at the Table of Demons, where, you know, he's making this threefold parallel it only makes sense if the table of the Lord is an altar, the way the table of demons is an altar, and if the Eucharist is a sacrifice, the way that the Jewish and pagan sacrifices are. I want to dwell on that just just a little bit, because this one, to me, is always a big topic of conversation among non-Catholics when I have this conversation. And, you know, you go back to Scripture, and Jesus himself, you know, I'll give you my flesh, and they left, and he didn't stop them. You know, oh, you misunderstood me. So you have 1,500 years of people tracing back to that statement, all believing that statement, all believing that the Mass was instituted by Christ at the Last Supper, and then all of a sudden Luther comes along, and they follow him rather than staying with the belief that the Church has been teaching for 1,500 years. To me, that makes yeah, no sense. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, you're, you're right to be kind of struck by that, I think, um, where it, it doesn't fit neatly. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't really make sense. And I think you're right to look to John 6 as well. That in John 6, because I think, like, just, to, just to be clear, if not everything Jesus says is meant to be taken literally, a lot of the things he says aren't. You know, when he says he's the shepherd for the sheep, he's not literally meaning that we're sheep. Mm-hmm. Or when he says he's the gate, you know, those kind of things. We understand what metaphors are. <laughs> but when people take Jesus literally when he's speaking metaphorically, we see that either Jesus clarifies or the evangelist will clarify. For instance, in John 2, when he says destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it, uh, John is make sure we know he's speaking of the temple of his body. He doesn't want us to get the misimpression that this is something meant to be taken literally, that he's actually going to destroy the temple of Jerusalem. Or in John 3, when he talks about being born of water and the Spirit, Jesus corrects Nicodemus, who takes him literally, and he doesn't mean it literally. Those kind of things happen. But in John 6, we see something really remarkable. First, the people don't take Jesus to mean something Eucharistic at first. First, when he talks about uh, the bread from heaven, they're thinking just literal bread, and he has to say, no, no, I'm the bread from heaven. And even then, their objection isn't, that's too strong of Eucharistic theology. Their objection is, how can you say you came from heaven? And then eventually, he really like draws their attention into uh, this Eucharistic literalism. 
Uh, it really, this is about verse 46 or so uh, in John 6. Mm-hmm. But, and at that point, he says, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. And, and in, it's only then, by like the second or third clarification, that his listeners suddenly have this realization of what he's saying. And then they say in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So if it follows that they're misunderstanding him, we would expect him to clarify again. He's already done that the last two times they misunderstood him. He does that everywhere else where he gets misunderstood, and if he doesn't do it, the evangelist does. But he does something really different instead. It starting in verse 53. He doubles down mm-hmm. on this really very literal-sounding Eucharistic language, that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, then he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, I'll raise him up on the last day. Then he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And then he says that just as the Father has sent him, and he lives because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. And then he says, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Like, this is what I'm talking about, God. That sort of thing is just so striking and repeatedly literal. I mean, he says, my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. It, there literally are something like ten different ways that he stresses the literal, non-metaphoric nature of the Eucharistic teaching, and that's not what he does when he's using a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And the response of the people, as you already alluded to, is that in verse 60, many of them say, well, that's a hard teaching, who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, says, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Now, from the Protestant read of that, if Jesus is meaning all of that as some sort of really clumsy metaphor for faith somehow, that eat my flesh and drink my blood means, like, believe that I'm the Son of God somehow, even though it doesn't, it's not really clear how that's a metaphor for that, <laughs> but if you take it in that way, then it's kind of remarkable that Jesus didn't clarify, no, no. I just meant be my disciple, because these were already his disciples. These are already people who believed what he taught. Mm-hmm. And instead, he loses a bunch of disciples. All he's saying is, like, have faith in me. They were there. They were ready. They already had faith in him. They were disciples. So it's, it's really a remarkable failure on Jesus's part, if the Protestant view is correct, to just lose disciples over a simple misunderstanding that he could have easily corrected. That's the kind of thing. And so when you read that and then connect it to the early Christians and realize they all took it the same way Catholics take it today, the Protestant case is, is really remarkably weak from the perspective of Scripture and perspective of history. In another area you cover, and it's another hang-up for non-Catholics, uh, is the Church structure, the, the Catholic Church structure. So what were the steps taken by the early Church to so to speak, set the ranks up, um, and what was their catalyst for making sure that structure was in place? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I want to clarify a view that I think is very common, that there's this, this understanding frequently that there was kind of a chaotic structure in the early church. People just kind of did whatever. You had a lot of house churches, so people were just doing whatever they wanted to to, to worship God in the way they saw fit. And eventually, they decided for one reason or another to have a bishop. Now, I'd point out a couple things there. First, we have no historical record of that ever happening anywhere, Mm -hmm. meaning 
There's no evidence of any church before the Reformation anywhere on earth, even a local church, ever doing that. And so this is a remarkable theory to have, because it really has no evidence. I mean, it's, it's a, like the Protestant theory there just has nobody they can point to. And there are literally hundreds of local churches for whom we have church records, many of them with a whole list of their bishops going back to their founding, and not one of them says, we didn't originally have that, but then we, we created it over time. So that's a, a big kind of red flag that this view is, is false. It's not the way uh, any history kind of looks. Instead, mm-hmm. uh, we find, even as early as St. Clement in 96, this belief uh, that the structure of the Church is something that isn't up to us to create, but instead is something that we receive uh, from the Apostles that Jesus created the Church, he gives the basic structure to the Apostles, the Apostles then uh, pass that on, and, and we receive it. And so that's the first kind of piece to have in place. That's Clement, writing about 96, who talks about this. Uh, and that those who break away from this are guilty of a shameful and detestable sedition. You know, like, if you decide not to follow this structure, it isn't just, you do you, I'll do me, or we'll decide to do something different. It's like, no, no, you've broken away uh, from this structure set up by Christ. But the other thing is that this structure was understood, and Clement lays this out as well, that the Jewish structure in the Old Testament, where you had a high priest, a priest, and Levites, was a prefigurement of the New Testament structure, where you have bishop, priests, and deacons. But the threefold sacrificial office of old prefigured the threefold sacrificial office in the Christian Church. Um, And so you have, for instance, Ignatius of Antioch, writing in about the year 107, a guy who learned Christianity from the Apostle John directly, saying that if you don't have those three things, you don't have the Church. In other words, like, you may have a a group of Christians. Think about the the real-life history of a place like Korea, where the Church kind of gets set up in Korea, but then all the priests are killed. They don't have priests for about 100 years because of persecution. They don't have the Church in the full sense. They have a group of Christians, but they don't have—they can't have Mass, they can't do any of those things, they can't have ordinations, of course, they can't have confirmations. There's a real sense in which the Church, in the full sense of that term, is still kind of lacking. You don't have a Church of Korea, because there's no—who's the head of the Church? Well, nobody. Mm-hmm. So that's the understanding that Ignatius is articulating back in 107. And that's a very explicitly Catholic view. Uh, Protestants don't think that. They would say, you know, well, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, since Christ is there, therefore the Church must also be there. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, you actually have that very clearly not what the Bible teaches in Matthew 18, where you're told to take one or two brothers with you to correct an erring brother— and if they don't listen to the two or three of you, then go to the Church. Well, if two or three of you are the Church, that doesn't make sense. It becomes redundant. So Jesus is clearly distinguishing between two or three gathered in his name and the Church. Protestants tend not to make that distinction. Ignatius makes that distinction. He says, for, you know, for you to have the Church, you need bishop, you need presbyters, we now say priests, and you need deacons. Uh, so that's a pretty remarkable thing. You, you find that stuff all over the place that there was a universal setup of the Church with the bishop at the top, supported and aided by priests and deacons. Mm -hmm. And that you find that all over the Church, wherever you go, 
even outside of the Roman Empire. You go down to Ethiopia, you go over to India, you're going to find wherever Christianity is, that Catholic structure. So a bit of a softball question here, based upon the uh, <laughs> fact that you wrote the book on the topic, but why is it important for us to listen to what the early church had to say and follow their example? Yeah, you know, one of the uh, topics I explore that I think that kind of illustrates this is on the four Gospels. Like, how do we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really are the four books we've got to be listening to about Jesus and not any of these other false Gospels? And you can say, well, the other Gospels are false Gospels that were written later, not by apostles. Well, how do you know that? Well, you know that because the Christians of the second century tell you so. Uh, or you can say, well... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are written by apostles or those associated with apostles. Well, how do you know that? Christians of the second century told you. You know, you could say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are orthodox, these other ones aren't. Again, how do you know it? And so there's no way around (laughs) taking the Christians of the second century as reliable. Because if you don't treat them as reliable, then how do you know you can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and nobody else, because everything else, whether we're looking at dating, whether we're looking at orthodoxy, whether we're looking at liturgical use, whether we're looking at apostolicity, all of those other questions are only answered if we know we can trust the second-century Christians. Mm -hmm. If you were to say, I think every second-century Christian is a heretic and a liar, okay, well now I have no way of knowing which books belong in the Bible. I don't even know which Gospels belong in the Bible. And so Christianity becomes simply unworkable. You're left to something like agnosticism or some vague theism maybe, but not Christianity, because you have no way of knowing whether Jesus taught Gnostic things or Christian things, because you're, you're just left with the mush. Uh, so there's no getting around the second century Christians. I mean, what, what happens is you either consciously engage them and treat them seriously, or you sort of unconsciously accept what they tell you, and, oh, well, this is what's in my Bible, so I just believe it without asking any questions. But there's no way to get around their authority. There's no way of getting around their reliability, because the the case for Christianity really does turn on it in a serious way. So to kind of wrap things up today, and maybe the most important question of all is, how can we use these lessons from the early Church to engage uh, peacefully uh, with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters about these topics? Yeah, I like to say, uh, because a lot of times Catholic-Protestant conversations come down to, like, how do we interpret this passage? Mm -hmm. I like to ask a couple questions. I like to say, okay, so if you're right, are you willing to say everybody got Christianity wrong for 1,500 years because they didn't interpret it the way you do? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, like, why should we trust the Holy Spirit is guiding you and not the Church? Like, when Christ says, I will not leave you orphans, he's not talking to you, Pete, or to me, Joe. He's talking to the Church. And he says, you know, the gates of hell won't overcome the Church. He doesn't say, I'm not going to go to hell. He doesn't say, you're not going to go to hell. He says, the Church isn't going to be overcome by the, gates, you know, by the gates of hell. So given all of that, like, in what world should I trust your personal interpretation of Scripture? In what world should you trust your personal interpretation of Scripture over 1,500 years, 2,000 years now, of unbroken Christian teaching that says we got this from the Apostles? Because once you go down that road you really are undercutting the whole case for Christianity for the reasons I explained. Like, the whole reason we can trust Christianity is because we know we can trust the earliest followers of the Apostles, many of whom, I might add, were willing to be martyred for their faith, 
many of whom had better prayer lives than most of us debating these things today, uh, you know, all of whom were close enough in time to, to know either the apostles or the students of the apostles. That's what we're dealing with when, when I'm writing this book. Those are the kind of uh, claims that I think we need to really grapple with. Mm. Joe, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Where can people find your book, The Early Church Was the Catholic Church? They can find it at shop.catholic.com. They can probably find it at their local Catholic bookstore. If you can't, I'd ask them to stock it. Uh, They can find it on amazon.com or mostly wherever you get books normally. Well, that's all we have time for today, Joe. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with us. Any closing thoughts? Well, yeah, I'll just say, uh, whether you're a Catholic or a non-Catholic listening to this today, certainly, of course, I hope you buy my book. I hope you read it. I hope you enjoy it but also just maybe start reading some of the Church Fathers. I, I give some kind of starting, you know, quotations and things. I'm hoping people who read the book will see in there some really interesting stuff from people they maybe have never heard of, or they want to, maybe they've heard of but have never read, and that it, it starts rather than finishes. Back. Listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media, I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic blogger. Until next time, God bless.